welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. As we begin, I'd like to thank our business members who support the museum year-round. Business membership offers museum member benefits to all of your employees, plus opportunities for outreach, visibility, and facility rental. Thanks to our current business members, Kenny Bunk Savings, Captain Lord Mansion, Captain Jeffords Inn, Clark Insurance, Home and Away Gallery, Huntington Common, Hussey Seating Company, Waldo Emerson Inn, The New School, 1802 House Bed and Breakfast Inn, Atria Kennebunk, The B&B Team, Boulangerie, Sherry's, Duffy's Tavern and Grill, Garrett Pillsbury, Gorham Savings Bank, Houston and Company, Mainstay Inn and Cottages, The Nonantum Resort, Old House Parts Company, Weir's Buick's GMC, and Andrews Milligan Real Estate Company. You can learn more about business membership and corporate sponsorship on our website, www.brickstoremuseum.org, or by emailing us at info at brickstoremuseum.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of The Brick, our monthly podcast series from the Brickstore Museum. I'm your host, Cynthia Walker, the museum's director. Today, we're going to explore current exhibits, hear an archival news bulletin, listen to one of our Kennebunk voices, take you behind the scenes at the museum, hear from local World War II veteran James Pastorelli, and hear more about Bicentennial plans for 2020. Here's what's going on this month for exhibitions. The Kennebunk High School Art Show is an annual exhibit that the museum puts on with the high school art department. We started this show in 2016 and now look forward to it every year. The creativity and talent you'll find in these works is really amazing. The idea for the art show came about after a discussion among staff and volunteers on how to increase engagement amongst younger visitors to the museum. It may come as no surprise that history museums across the country tend to attract older demographics more often than younger folks. In order to properly carry out our mission of history education and access for all, the museum needs to use unique ways to engage every age. Becoming an inclusive art space is one of those opportunities. The Kennebunk High School Art Show features pieces in a variety of media and will be open through March 22nd. After that, we'll be welcoming in an elementary school art show beginning at the end of March. Interested in volunteering? One of the jobs that takes the longest in any exhibition installation is writing and hanging object labels. For instance, labels for the high school art show took about four days to write, print, 
cut and hang. So if you're interested in being an exhibition volunteer, let us know by emailing Janine McCoy at jmccoy at brickstoremuseum.org. Also up this month is Western African Arts and Culture, a private collection owned by community member Cloudy Boy, who was born and grew up in Western Africa and moved to Maine as an adult. Her collection of masks, furniture, carvings, and metalwork will be on display through April. Lastly, make sure to stop in to see our Kennybunks Cultural Landscape Exhibition, which is upstairs in the first building. As it's one of our more permanent exhibitions that will be taken down this spring to make room for our upcoming summer exhibitions. Some of the historical objects in this exhibit will be coming downstairs to be exhibited in our upcoming bicentennial show, which will feature a mashup of history and art to tell the story of the Kennybunks over time. Upstairs, we'll be featuring a traveling show discussing the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York City and how that event inspired a mass civil rights movement for the LGBTQ community that still resonates today. To learn more about upcoming exhibits, please visit our website at brickstoremuseum.org. Now it's time for our archival news bulletin. Each month, we're going to select one article, which was printed in an archival newspaper here at the museum, to share with you. This one comes from the Kennybunk Star, the precursor to the York County Co-Star, and it was printed on May 8, 1931. Henry Ford's 20 millionth car will visit Kennybunk next Tuesday. The 20 millionth Ford automobile, symbolic of one man's contribution to the world history and the development of American industry, will visit Kennybunk on Tuesday, May 12th, en route from Detroit on a transcontinental tour. This car was assembled in the presence of Henry and Edsel Ford and left the Ford Motor Company's Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan on April 14th. Following the brief ceremonies at the assembly line, and with Henry Ford at the wheel, the car was driven to Mr. Ford's home several miles away, where its meeting with the first Ford product in 1893 was recorded for future generations in motion pictures. The 20 millionth Ford is expected to arrive in Kennebunk about 10 o'clock in the morning, standard time. It will be met at the dividing line between North Kennebunkport and Kennebunk by State Highway Patrolman Linwood Carroll and Granville Siemens and escorted to the salesroom of Chamberlain's Automobile Service on Main Street where it will be placed on exhibition for 30 minutes before resuming its tour. John Balch, chairman of the Board of Selectmen and editor of the Star, have been invited to inscribe their names on the log of the 20 millionth Ford, thus recording Kennebunk as one of the towns visited by the famous car. This ceremony will take place following the reception. When its tour of the country is completed, the 20 millionth Ford will be returned to Greenfield Village for preservation near the first Ford, the gasoline buggy in which Henry Ford astounded his neighbors and demoralized horse traffic when he chugged noisily along Detroit's cobbled streets at the dizzy speed of nearly 20 miles an hour. What you just heard was taken from the headlines of the May 9th, 1931 Kennebunk Star. If you're interested in doing research in our newspaper collection, I encourage you to visit our website to see how. Just as a point of reference for the article you heard, Ford's car visited Chamberlain's Auto Service on Main Street. 
That building still stands as the second building in the Brickstore Museum's historic block of gallery spaces today. So next time you visit the museum, keep in mind it used to be an auto parts store up until the 1950s. Kenny Bunk Voices is a YouTube series created by the museum with the help of Blake Baldwin at Video Creations and supported by the Morton Kelly Charitable Trust and the Davis Family Foundation. The project asks current residents of Kennebunk to read from letters and diaries now housed in our archives, written by past Kennebunkers from the 1750s all the way to the 1960s. The feedback that I hear the most is that all of these letters are sad, but that's really the beauty of them. Some are funny, some are sad, some are loving, and some are even angry. These letters share a variety of emotions that we all still experience today, and sharing these intimate stories helps us all to feel less alone in our own emotions and in the world. I hope you take comfort from the archival evidence that someone out there has experienced the same emotions as you. It's really a wonderful way to tie all of us closer together. Today, you'll hear current resident Laurie Parkinson read from a letter written by Ida Morton Barry to her husband Charles in 1908. May 1908. My dear, dear husband, Wednesday will complete the 34th year of our life together, and I wish so much we might spend this anniversary together. These years have been happy indeed, have they not, dear? You have always been so good to me, so patient and loving, and if in my life there has been anything good, it is all due to you. I was an only child when I became your wife, three years younger than little Julia, and I knew so little of the world. But I have tried so hard to be a good wife and a good mother to our dear children, though my heart aches when I realize how often I have failed. In fact, it seems as though my whole life has been one long failure. We have been very happy, have we not? And I pray God that we may draw closer and closer together and no matter what may happen, help each other to bear the burdens that are laid upon us. Your devoted wife, Ida M. Barry. To view all of our Kennybunk Voices episodes, visit the Brickstar Museum channel on YouTube. Additionally, we're casting for our second season, quote-unquote, of Kennybunk Voices this spring. If you're interested in helping us bring the archives to life, please volunteer. The best way to do that is to email Janine McCoy at jmccoy, which is J-M-C-C-O-Y, at brickstormuseum.org. Behind the scenes at the museum. You may hear museum staff and trustees say, museum services are requested now more than ever, and that's why we need your support. But what does that mean? I'll start with a quick budget mention. The museum operates on a budget of roughly $250,000 per year. How is this funded? We are funded completely through individual donations and membership, admissions and ticket sales, business and corporate donations, and foundation grants. A popular assumption is that the museum receives town funding for its operation, but we don't. Thanks to the planning of many wonderful former trustees and staff members, we also have an endowment that can support about $60,000 in costs per year. That means the museum raises $190,000 every year in order to operate. We employ two full-time staff and three part-time staff, 
and are lucky to welcome about 80 volunteers to support our work each year. So back to our original question. What services are requested now more than ever? Here's just a few. Requests for town reports, family records, house histories, archival photographs, artifact research, and more go through our collections department 365 days a year. In 2019, that meant over 450 hours of research assistance provided by the museum. Looking further, accessing this research takes coordination and time. Every photo, ledger, artifact, or anything else in the museum's collection is constantly being cataloged, organized, scanned, and photographed. Its file is digitized through a software called PassPerfect in order to track its history, its current location, and its conservation needs. Photographs are constantly being scanned, repaired, and emailed to those requesting images. Public and private educators work with the museum for tailored curriculum programs and educational field trips. If you grew up here in Kennebunk, you may remember visiting the museum on the annual third grade field trip, which is one of our longest running programs. By comparison, in this year alone, we are working with K through second grades, third grades, fourth grades, the high school art department, and the alternative education classroom within RSU 21. This is incredibly important to our strategic work that the museum expands our capacity to help educators and students. Exhibitions are also created in-house, and with a growing annual attendance, we change out our exhibits at least four times a year. Every history exhibit installed requires months of lead time for research, writing, installation, painting, and marketing. Every art exhibit installed requires constant communication with local artists, label writing, hanging, and marketing. Looking further, exhibitions attract group tours from throughout New England, travelers learning about our area, and scholarly researchers. Our walking tours, both inside and outside, are in demand at our Kennebunk Beach and Historic District locations. Collection storage tours are popular now as well, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at the museum's 70,000 artifacts in our storage areas. These all require time, research, and staff and volunteers to lead the tours. Local organizations, especially surrounding the bicentennial year, are wonderfully locating the museum as a resource for their own history. We are happily working with organizations and committees, large and small, to assist them in developing programming, artwork, educational materials, resources, and research throughout the year. Changes in demographic interests allows us to grow our online presence by creating this podcast, our YouTube series, and sometime this spring, an upgraded website that offers history resources for our town to access digitally. This is all to say, this is why we need your support. The many services provided by the museum are often intangible, but still needed by our community every day. We wouldn't be able to accomplish this without the incredible support of over 80 volunteers, 400 museum members and donors, and those in the community like you. Next up at the museum is our If Houses Could Talk program, which encourages community members to look into the history of your own home. We're happy to help you look into that history, and then hopefully the end result will be a poster 
that you will put out in front of your house near the sidewalk uh, one week in June. So the rest of our community will be able to visit the front of your house and learn a little bit more about the personal histories going on inside it. If you're interested in signing up for the If Houses Could Talk program, please email us at info, I-N-F-O, at brickstoremuseum.org. Another way to take advantage of the bicentennial year is to help preserve our history and take an active role in doing that. The collections team at the Brickstore Museum has selected our 2020 conservation project, and that's the original First Parish Church, which is now the Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, Weathervane, which sat atop the church's steeple since about 1803. The original Weathervane was replaced with a replica, and the original was given to the Brickstore Museum. It's made of wood in the shape of an ear of corn, and it beamed as a symbol of our town for over 150 years before it was too damaged to remain in its post. So the Brickstore Museum took the ailing weathering into our collection, and it has remained here ever since. Now, we'd love your help in restoring it. To learn more about supporting conservation efforts, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org. We've got a new program series for the bicentennial year, which is called the Century Saturday Series. The community is invited to join us one Saturday a month from May to October to discover a new century of Maine history. Each Century Saturday will feature a lecture, a pop-up artifact exhibit, fun activities, and foodways that discuss our shared history during each century, starting with the 16th century in May. The 21st century will close out the program in October, and we'll be asking, where does Maine go from here? As far as the town of Kennebunk goes, the town of Kennebunk's Bicentennial Committee, made up of interested citizens and historians, is scheduling many events during the month of June, including lectures, the museum's Bicentennial exhibition opening, a reenactment on Parsons Field, and a block party on Main Street on June 27th, so we can all share in our community celebration. To learn more about those plans, you can visit Kennebunk's Bicentennial Committee site at kennebunkmaine.us. Today, we're sharing with you an interview that we conducted with local World War II veteran James Pastorelli, who turned 99 years old last year. In our partnership with the American Legion Post 74 here in Kennebunk, we had the opportunity to interview James with infamous interviewer Joe Foster. Here, you'll hear the first part of our interview. In our next podcast, we'll be premiering the second part of our interview. If you'd like to hear the whole interview without interruption, you'll soon be able to hear it on our website, www.brickstormuseum.org where we'll have a special oral history section so you can hear more about town and the lives of people who lived here. Well, today is August 14th, 2019. My name is Joe Foster, and today, on behalf of the Brickstore Museum and Weber Le Fay American Legion Post number 74 yeah. in Kennebunk, I'm privileged to visit and chat with longtime Kennebunk resident James Pastorelli. Uh, at his home on Merrifield Drive. Jim is a remarkable citizen of Kennebunk, known for being a consummate gentleman, 
and a perfect example of an amazing group of Americans known as the greatest generation. When the fate of the world hung in the balance, his generation answered the call, stepped up and saved freedom and democracy that we have known for the last 75 years. It's not coincidental that uh, our wish to talk with him today coincides next week with his 99th birthday. And we thank you for welcoming us into the home here this morning. My pleasure. Now, I thought it might be appropriate to start 99 years ago, since you're one of the few who remember that uh, period. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Because uh, well, I was born in uh, Chester Hill, Newton, Massachusetts, back in 1920, August 22nd. I was born at home and delivered by my, my mother's second cousin, who was a physician. <laughs> so I was born at home. Uh, my sister also, by chances, was two years younger than I. And uh, I grew up in Newton, and I went to uh, schools there. And I uh, matriculated uh, at uh, Boston College High, High School, which was in Boston. It was my daily round trip to, to, uh, down to uh, James Street. <laughs> I graduated from there in 1938. I did not go to Boston College at that particular time because um, the money was scarce. I think if you read history, Joe, you'll understand that in 1939, was worse than 1932. The banks had no money and neither did anybody else. Yeah, yeah. And it was only about 12% of the graduates out of high school went to college. Yeah. It was so yeah. well because of that factor. And uh, from there, I uh, did a few jobs here. We were working and, uh, you know, when Jordan Marshes, I knew the gentleman there that was. Uh, and he always had a job for me for a couple of weeks, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And eventually it came to 1942 when, uh, in April, when I was uh, called to uh, enter the Army. From, uh, I was, uh, we went down to uh, Chevrolet Division uh, in Boston. That's where I was inducted in uh, August 21st, 1942. 42. And uh, that next day was my birthday. Yes, I was. So it was a good birthday. <laughs> and I left for uh, the Newton City Hall on September 2nd, 2nd or 3rd, I forget which. That was my mother's anniversary, the 3rd, her wedding anniversary. And uh, just about uh, four years later, three years and nine months, I think it was, I came home on my mother's birthday, <laughs> 19th of March. So, uh, so that was my itinerary up until that point. Well, it is interesting that all those things happened on anniversaries or birthdays or certain important dates. Must have something to do with how you plan things. Yes, that's right. We <laughs> always plan things. That's right. So. Well, before you, you said you before going in the service. Uh, between 38 and 41, these kind of odd jobs you didn't... Yes, yeah. more, more or less. And it was you, lucky to get them. You get a job, that's right. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, but I got to know the other name, uh, uh, well, I can't remember his name now, but uh, he was the uh, uh, 
personnel director, George Marsh. Oh, Boston. yes, yeah, yeah. So I got to know him quite readily, and uh, he, uh, I used to visit him weekly, you know, to see Check if there was any jobs available and elsewhere. And, and uh, he always would have a couple of jobs over there, inventory, or I was down selling dog toggery, or I was in the shoe <laughs> department for a couple of weeks, you know, when they, when they had various uh, sales and things. But what, what else, uh, from 29 when the stock market crashed to, to well, as you say, the war really changed things, but uh, things were top all the way through the 30s. What do you remember about Boston and, and uh, the, the effects of the Depression at that time? Uh, devastating, Joe. You yeah. saw men on the side of the walk or the sidewalks uh, selling apples. And you saw the lines in Boston Common up there daily. Uh, really? Long lines uh, getting a meal. And Food kitchen. Uh, this is what, uh, uh, what you saw everywhere. It was very, very heart rendering. And that went all the way through the 30s? Well, pretty much. Uh, and so the question was that, that the, well, we always said that Roosevelt never uh, solved the unemployment problem. Yeah. yeah. There were, uh, I think at 1932, there was something on the, the, around 12,000 people unemployed. And I think in 1939, it was up to somewhere in the vicinity of about 16 to 18,000 a million people unemployed. Isn't that remarkable? They kept getting more and more. Well, because uh, there was a little tick in 1936. Yeah. And that was. Uh, I don't know what, what the reason was, uh, but uh, the market moved up a little bit and there was a few jobs around, but then it just seemed to, every, it fell out. Was and, it a recession in 37, do you think? You no, know, it was started around 37, 38, and 39 was a tough year. Yeah. But yeah. There, there was really no jobs, and that was the zenith yeah. of, of, you know, 18, roughly 8 million. 18 million people unemployed. And that uh, was one, probably one of the most devastating things around people. I don't think people working. know much, understand that they sort of think that as the 30s progressed, everything got better. It, it didn't. It didn't get better. Yeah. It never got better until we entered the war. Yeah. And then the industry then just started to expand. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Do you remember where you were on December 7th? 1941? I was 1941, I was at home. Yeah, I remember it very well. I heard it on the, my mother had the radio on and they come on what, uh, what uh, transpired. Yeah, and that was... Did you have any idea right off quick that you might have something to do with what was coming in the coming days? Oh, I, I think everybody around us uh, knew at that particular time the scuttlebutt was amongst all of us was that uh, it's not going to be long before they're going to be calling us up. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I decided I would go down to the Navy Department, which was the downtown Boston, down Devonshire Street. So I went down there, Joe, Joe and uh, I got in, he said, well, they introduced me, you know, I introduced myself to them. and. I said, oh, come over here, we want to talk to you. And I filled out the questionnaires and all this and that, you know. And he said, we have a little exa examination for you to take. I said, oh, well, fine, what is it? What is it? 
he opens up this book and he says to me, what number do you see on this right here? And I'm looking and I'm saying, I, to myself, I said, I don't see any number there. <laughs> so he turned over another page, he said, uh, what number do you see on that page? And I, I looked at him and I said, is he trying to, what, what's he trying to do with me? I said, nothing. So finally he gets into about the fourth page and he said, do you see anything there? And it dawned on me. I said, uh, I see the letter number four there, something like that. And he said, please close the book. He said, the Navy can, can't use you. He said, you're colorblind. <laughs> so that was my end. And I, so I said, well, I'm here, I'll be here I come. <laughs> and so we were called up. I have all the papers here. Oh. Which, it, which shows Joe. So this is my whole history well, of my service. And this is the call-up order for, as you can see oh. there, Joe. This is your, oh yes, report for induction. Yes. <laughs> now, you said you went to a Chevrolet? Yeah, that's where the induction center was. The Chevrolets. Was it just because there was a lot of room there? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. 7 a.m. They don't play around, do they? <laughs> when they want you, they want you early in the morning. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, you do have everything. Yeah. The vaccinations, the whole business. And from where, what, how, once you were uh, at the Chevrolet garage and got all your papers signed, how long was it before you departed? Well, I uh, departed the 3rd of September. I'll be done. 3rd of September. And that uh, that was where? What you went? Uh, I went to uh, Fort Devon. Oh, Fort Devons, yeah. Yep. yeah. That's where everybody went to Fort Devon. Everybody uh, in New England, did you go to Fort Devon? My Navy. Ah, the Navy, uh, yeah. yeah. See, they took you, they wouldn't take me. <laughs> well, I had the same experience you did. I was colorblind. They said, no, no, we can't use you. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's uh, uh, And I, I wasn't excited about going in the Army. Uh, well, now, from Devon, well, Devon's was just an uh, embarkation, disembarkation yeah, point? Yeah, they say it's an assembly point for bringing everybody in from New England. Yeah, and yeah. Then they, uh, Put, put you on. I think I was there four or five days and I said, well, I may, may get a, a, a chance to go home Sure. You know, on, a, on Saturday. <laughs> well, they called us out Friday night <laughs> and I was one of the listed to, to be on the platform tomorrow and the train took off from Devons and we ended up in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Ah, That's where I ended up. That was interesting. And that was a field artillery replacement training center. And I was there from 1942 to 43. And you'll find that that's in there. I have the. Well, they now the. Uh, was that long? Normal training time. In other words, that seems like a rather long period of time to be. To be in training, was that normal? Usually you didn't, at Fort Devens, you didn't train long. No. But, yes. At Bragg. At Bragg. Yes, that was, uh, I was called for duty at Fort Bragg. Yeah. 
and I stayed there one year. Then they transferred me to uh, Fort uh, uh, Meade, Maryland, and I was there, and that was a, 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 a post that what, what he did, troops came in from various sections, they were placed together, and they're shipped up to, to New Jersey to camp uh, up, up there, and then they were sent overseas. So we, at each, each uh, one of these various spots, was there intensive training that specialized things? Yes, that's right. Uh, do you have any idea what you were being trained for? I was trained, trained basically uh, at uh, Fort Bragg, which drills and so forth of that yeah. nature, because you were a new recruit. In the infantry? Well, no, well, this is a field artillery. Oh, field artillery, that's right. But, but yes. we did most all shooting on the range, this, that, and everything, yeah. with the old uh, rifles and so forth. Which if you hang this way, the bullet went that way. That's how bad they were. <laughs> and, uh, what about bigger artillery? Were you trained just on rifles or larger? No, I didn't. Ever, I never did get to that point. That's probably a good thing. Yeah, because they kept me. And then, as I said, in, in 1943, they sent me to uh, Fort uh, Meade, Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a replacement center for people going to, up to uh, New Jersey, New York, yeah. to be shipped overseas. Now, what, what was the approximate date of your shipping up to New Jersey? Got, uh, I got there in uh, 1944. In 44? Yeah. We sailed uh, in January 14th. We sailed on the SS General Brooks. And that was a 11,000 foot transport. 11,000? 11, 11, it was foot. a Navy transport. And uh, we ended up uh, in uh, Plymouth, England. In Plymouth? Yeah. And boy, what a storm we had on the North Atlantic. I never want to go through one of those again. Boy, I'll tell you, he, he's laughing. He knows. <coughs> he knows what those storms are in the North Atlantic. Now, you had. A whole bunch of, <laughs> a whole bunch of soldiers heaving their supper, I suppose. Oh, some tried to commit suicide. Oh, really? Uh, that's how bad it was. Oh, for heaven's sake! Oh yeah. It, uh, oh, sick. I, I had a heave too. I got up and I went down. <laughs> so this soldier, a sailor, was on the boat. I said, "Gee, what? Can you get something? You know, to, to your stomach or something?" He says, "Go downstairs and eat." And I got downstairs and I said, I'm not holding this either. <laughs> so I got upstairs and uh, he was still up on the deck. So he said, uh, I said, boy, he said, go downstairs and eat the breakfast for the third time. Oh, my Lord. He said, take, do what I tell you. I went down and ate the breakfast. I was all right. And I was never seasick after. Well, I, is that I, the I secret like the that. third time? I said, boy, I said, that's a funny cure. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. scary, you know. Well, yes, yeah, I can imagine. So it was something. But uh, we did a, a returning. We had a, 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 another bad storm in the English Channel coming home. Yeah, that's a rough yeah. place, too. Yeah. 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 The, uh, 
Uh, by that time in the war, there was no danger going across of U-boats or anything of that sort. They'd been cleared oh, out. Oh, they were still around. Really? Oh, we had destroyer escorts with us all the way. Yeah. It surrounded us. Oh, yeah. and with just one ship or was it in a convoy? No, no, we weren't in the convoy. Just the same thing. We were by ourselves, but yeah. they, we had two uh, destroyer escorts. Yeah. That's what we had. And how many were on that ship, did you say? Approximately. Oh, gee, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's 11,000 foot boat, or 10 boat. How much would that hold? Well, I, I depends how much room they wanted you to have. Not much, probably. I, I, I know I'm down in the hole. That's what I ended up, <laughs> down the bottom. And for that to go up, Joe, and you really ought to see it. It's going to the top of the waves, and next thing you know, you're coming down with a thud hitting the bottom. Oh, my word, Joe. It was a Take the spread. That might have had something to do with your appetite. Stay out of your wits. It was so terrible. Now, landing in Plymouth, which must have been a huge, huge place. No, we stopped at Plymouth. Oh, stopped at Plymouth. We didn't get off the ship. Didn't get off the ship. The next morning, we shipped. The ship made its way towards La Havre. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we ended up in the Havre. They escorted us out to Camp Old Gold. I've heard of Camp Old Gold. Yeah, and uh, we were there for about uh, about a month. And what, yeah. what what were you doing? Just training and getting? Yeah, yeah. They were assembling us and uh, you know getting us ready. Yeah, to, yeah. Uh, And from there we went down to the Seventh uh, Army. I can't remember her na name, uh, the general that was there. But uh, we had, uh, that was in uh, uh, early March 1945 mm -hmm. when we finally got there because we left in January 44. Uh, well, January 45, but we got there in uh, Camp Dix. We got there in uh, December. Late November, December, and then went and across. So we had all the shots when we left uh, Fort Bragg. Yeah, yeah. And the guy, I said, "Well, I had the shot." He said, "We're going to get the three years." Uh, I said, "Well, whatever." So I got six <laughs> shots. <laughs> now, what was Old Gold? Was it a just a, another place that shipped? Just another classification place. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's all it was, and you know, they assembled everybody and. They took they took us and they uh, down to the seventy first infantry division. Yeah. Did you know you were headed there before you got there, or was oh, that? Oh, they don't tell you anything. <laughs> so they, they didn't tell us anything. So we're on our way down there, and when we passed this place like Metz, and I said, "Well, we're in France, southern France." And yeah. So uh, the next thing we knew, that we're in this two ton truck, you know. There's yeah, sure. Twelve of us in there, or well, sixteen, one one or the other. And so when we got down there, and a uh, fellow next to me, uh, he was a violinist with the, uh, uh, the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And he was, I tell you, I never want to go into a combat with that fellow. <laughs> he, he was just sick of everybody. He was the world's worst. Uh, they finally got rid of him. Oh! <laughs> I, I said to the captain, I said, geez, you've got to get rid of this guy. I said, he's going to be on a salt tail. <laughs> uh, anyway, we got down there, and, and sure enough, the, uh, the, uh, 
the closer we got, the, the more fire we saw and the more shells we said get here exploding. So we ended up uh, down in the 7th Army yeah. with the 7th, uh, uh, 71st Infantry Division and the 14th Infantry Regiment, which 14th. was an old Army regiment. Dates back before uh, 1862. Oh, really? A Civil uh, War and all? Oh, yeah. yeah, all that, yeah. So we, uh, <laughs> so we were in combat there at the, we were in the Battle of um, Beachy. That was one of our first battles that we fought with now, the Now, at Germans. that point in the war, which by, you'll say it's March approximately. It was March, early March, we were at Beachy, and that was when about the Beachy took place. Did you get a sense that the Germans were weakening at all, or did it seem that way? Uh, uh, not right there, <laughs> but uh, we did uh, uh, we did have some little sense because uh, they didn't meet much opposition. The Seventh Army, when they came from Africa to Southern France, yeah, yeah, they didn't meet the the uh, forces they thought they were going to be, uh -huh. and I think it was all because they were up at the bulge. And they hadn't moved. They hadn't moved, moved anybody south. Yeah. So uh, we uh, were there, and we made our way from Beachy. After the battle, we moved up. We uh, the uh, Siegfried line. We yeah. reached the Siegfried line, and we had uh, we had matter of fact a couple of British units with us. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, they had lousy, lousy food. And good <laughs> I mean, tea. Good tea. Yeah, oh yeah, the team was all right, but the rest of it was terrible. <laughs> and so we breached the uh, line, and uh, now it, it, just describe uh, history books often refer to the Siegfried Line, and what what was your what is it? What did you see? Well, it, it was more or less stanchions of uh, steel and Cement, concrete yeah. and things of that nature, uh, and it was to stop. Tanks, I assume, and vehicles. Oh yeah, it was to stop tanks, vehicles, and all. Of it. Yeah. But we uh, took it off foot. And at just about that time, they were looking for. Uh, obviously, they sent me to battalion headquarters, the 14th, after we got down to the beach. Yeah. And uh, the. Uh, commander came to me and he said to me, we noticed, he said, soldier, uh, that you were uh, on your MOSs. He says, you uh, speak German. And I said, well, I said, I speak adequate German, not uh, ganz perfect Deutsch. <laughs> I said, not from the perfect German. And he said, we're going to transfer you out to the 71st Infantry Division headquarters. Ah. And you're going to be with the 71st Infantry Division. We're just sending you up to 14th Infantry Regiment. And uh, you will meet a, a Major Neal, and you will be his interpreter for oh. him. And uh, we were just the two of us. And what we did on the way over, we followed the troops into all the various towns in Germany. We were all set up to do this. Just so, you, the two of you? The two of us. Yeah. We, we followed, we were right behind the troops. Sometimes we were enmeshed in them, with them, yeah. unfortunately, sometimes. And sometimes we were ahead of them. And that wasn't too good. No, no, that's not they, good we didn't, uh, <laughs> no. but, uh, but that's what our job was, to analyze each individual town. 
and all the information we could gather to send that back to to headquarters. And people behind us were like the CID intelligence and yeah, all yeah. that. That information went back to the intelligence. But people. you you were first. We were first. Yeah. We were right behind the the guys who were. were uh, well, it, by, it, it wouldn't. How often would you say were you in the midst of something just happening to finish up? In other words, right on the edge of the battle itself. Oh, we were probably from here to the traffic lights. Well, that's pretty damn close. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we were close, and sometimes we were right in the, uh, unfortunately, uh, we had a, a, a lieutenant colonel uh, uh, who, who you might remember know their name. Their name was Swope. They were from Kentucky. They were horse people. They were very wealthy. S-W-O-P-E. Yeah. They are very wealthy people. Yeah. And they are New York, you know, and... Kentucky, right, right, you know, people, and uh, he sent us down there. He said, "Oh, he said we need to get that information." He says, "Down there," so we went down there, and, and, and Major Neal sitting out next week. He said, "Hey, you think we're supposed to be here?" He said, "I hear this is coming over my head." <laughs> I said, "Well, I said I don't think so." I said, "That your friend up there sent us down this way for and for this town down here." And I said, "It hasn't been cleared out yet. Good for us to go in, you know. We yeah, had to wait yeah. until they cleared the town before we go in and talk to the mayors and whoever sure, was sure. and gather the information that we were." sent back, and that was sent back. To but intelligence. there were still German troops in the town. Oh, they were still there, the Germans. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and uh, so uh, that was one of, one of the things. And uh, we went all the way until the end of the war. And Doing? We ended up through, uh, we went through Munich, Hamburg, and, uh, various other cities. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the pleasantest things that happened to me in my journey, I was in the lead vehicle with Major Neal. We were now going to move into Austria, and they wanted us to be the, we didn't know what to expect. So I said, well, Neil said to me, he said, uh, why us? <laughs> and he said, I said, well, I said, I got a gun behind here by the back of the top of the So anyway, we crossed the Inn River. We were the first ones over. Side of the road. Guess what? For all the Austrians and all their Sunday attire. Oh. All the little girls, all with their... Uh, uh, I can't remember what it is. Grindles, Gundles, whatever they... Uh, yeah, that's cool. And uh, I sat down, and the little girl was holding a posy, a bunch of flowers. So I stopped the vehicle, and I motioned to her. She came over, and she, and I said to her, "What would you like?" And she said, "You have some cow gummy." She said, "Cow gummy is chewing gum." Oh, yeah. So uh, I gave her, and she had a few little uh, other girls with her, all dressed up. And I said, I gave her some. I said, now, you share that with your friends. Now, that's a, 
welcome that you didn't expect. We did not expect. Finally, when we stopped in the town, a man came over and said to me, he said, Gottseid Dank. He said, what? You, are, you people are our liberators. Now, unfortunately, part of the bad, bad part of all, the Russians did a terrible job on the Austrians. The Russians did? Yeah. You have, probably haven't heard of us at any extent. Well, it doesn't seem to get the history books so much. No, but and I'll tell you, they murdered them, they raped them, they killed them. Terrible. The Russians took it out on the Austrians, what the Germans did to them yeah. in Russia. Yeah. They were just waiting. I'm sure that they felt that the Austrians were no better than the Germans. That's right. Yeah. That was right. So that was one of those aside things. And you saw some of that evidence of that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. you could see it. You could see it. Yeah. And of course, when you get in with the uh, SS, yeah, you know, the, the, no holds bars of the SS. Yeah. You, never want, you never want to be in, captured by the SS. That's you might not likely see the day, daylight yeah. again. Yeah. They were notoriously bad. I'll tell you a funny story while I, while I am, digress for a minute. No, no, digress, digress. I was, uh, this is 1965, 66. I went to work for Handsome McPhee with dis distributors from VW in New England. And uh, I was sitting at the table with, uh, in the morning, they usually call them the salespeople, sure. and they have the uh, uh, service people, and they have other people, parts people, who, who circulate through uh, New England. So this fellow came in and sat down with the group. He's a German, from over German, uh, from Germany. And I'll tell you the story afterwards. But we met and had a battle with the 6th SS Mountain Division North. Oh, and I, I tell imagine. you, there was no whole bars on that. Yeah. That was a real fierce battle. And where, where was that? That was in the town, I'd have to show you on my map. But oh, yeah, yeah, we'll look I, at that. I can't here. recall the uh, community now. So this fellow was sitting there, and uh, one of the uh, salespeople said from, uh, Hans, uh, we'll, call him, we'll call him Hans. He said, tell me, he said, were you in the war? He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. He said, what were you? He said, I was a uh, lieutenant in, this, in the German forces. And he said, where did you? He said, were you in a combat? Oh, he said, we were in such and such a place against the, against the uh, 71st Infantry Division. I turned to him and I said, SS. 6th SS Mountain Division. He turned completely red, jumped off the chair, and ran out of the room. No kidding. And yeah. that's 20 years later. Yeah, this is 20 years later. In the later. So Charlie says to me, Jim, what did you say to him? <laughs> he was a volunteer SS. Yeah, yeah. And you know what he was covering up? Uh, a lot more than just the turtle. Yeah. yeah. So uh, but we have, we went through the German towns and so forth. We were interviewed, and matter of fact, Mr. Kennedy, who was a uh, from the New York Tribune, a writer for the Tribune, uh, he happened to come here to our regimental headquarters, and uh, he wanted to go down to the front. I happened to be at the regiment, and I said to uh, uh, the adjutant said to me, Are "You going down to the front, Jim? Yeah, yeah, just where I'm headed right now." 
I said, go down there. I said, to the town, and I said, the battle going on right there, down uh, this community. And he said to me, uh, would you take Mr. Kennedy down to the, um, the, the front? I said, yes, yeah. sure. Well, we got down towards the front, and of course, we come under water fire. Much more. And hitting out in the field. So someone was directing water fire at us. Oh, right, directly at us. And they kept coming closer and closer. Next thing I know, one, there's two, there's a whole row of big, huge trees in front of, in front of uh, on the road. So he's, he's getting frightened to death. I said, get behind that tree. And I said, don't move. <laughs> so the next thing I know, there were about two trees down, they were uh, exploring the tree. So I turned the vehicle around and I took him back to the regimental <laughs> headquarters. So he did take my name down and everything else, and I was written up in the uh, uh, Herald Tribune. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Well, I can imagine you. He Someone owed told a lot me to that. You. He said, my father told me, he said, he saw your name in the Herald Tribune. <laughs> so I got, yeah, I guess from New York. I from New York. But, uh, now, yeah. you, how, just backing up for a minute, how, what was this experience? How did you learn German? Was that in high school? A high school, yeah. I had three all together. I had three years in Germany. Well, that certainly paid off in some ways. Of course, yeah. it could have gotten you killed too. But well, yeah. so that was our real job because they had about thirteen teams. Yeah, we were when well, eventually we were transferred to the Civil Affair Division. Yeah, of yeah. the uh, of the army, and with, with that we were then sent as the war wound down and came to a close on May 5th. Yeah. Now our real job began. This is where the job really took place. But before you get to that, and I think I know where you're going with it, the, the, essentially the bigwigs knew months back that things were winding down, and I assume that your division, your group that you had been interpreter for, uh, you were sort of feeling out what was going to happen next uh, in these communities, in these towns. Oh, yes. We, we, we know what was happening. Right, Because right. eventually, when uh, they established the uh, 3rd Military Government Regiment, you see, uh, that, that's the picture. Uh, this, now, this was right after the war, Joe. Ah, yes. Uh, you see 71st X, that's the 71st Division headquarters. The X, yeah. Yeah, and you see it's military government. Well, that's what we used when we went through the war, that vehicle. And that, uh, you and everybody, this is what you drove about, uh, yeah. Now, in terms of the, you, it, when it says military government, was that post-war? Or, or, no, that's during the war. That's during the war. We were part of the 71st. That's but very we were military government. And then, as I say, when the war ended, yeah. we were, for about a month after that, we were sent to uh, headquarters of the th third military government. No, we said uh, there was the, uh, uh, no, uh, I'm trying to think for a minute now. No, we was the headquarters where Eisenhower was. Bad, bad. What was the name of the town? That, that wasn't in Bonn. Well, I saw Eisenhower went by with his uh, 
everyone's always his girlfriend. The, uh, oh, this famous secretary, yeah. Secretary, yeah. yeah. Well, she was his driver. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so when the war come winding down now, Joe, we're, we're ends on the May 5th. 5th, that's right. Yeah. General Wyman was our commanding officer of the, uh, and we were part of the third uh, 3rd Army. We were transferred in France, well I missed that, in France we were transferred from the 7th to the 3rd Army with General Patton. Right, right. And if the, I know where we were headed, if the uh, if, uh, war in Belgium and France with the Germans, the, uh, uh-huh. we know where we were going. But that ended with the one he said, "Oh nuts!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stone. He, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't going to uh, give up. So we just went to the right and we were down in uh, on the Rhine River, and uh, so uh, we, at, at the Rhine River, what we had, we had 115 field pieces firing across the river. And I don't know how many they had, but I know it took the roof off the CP. <laughs> the CP, the roof came off, off the roof. So, <laughs> Must have been kind of a noisy place, too. Oh, oh, and so that night, uh, I said to him, he said, where are we going to sleep tonight? I said, not back where we slept last night. <laughs> I said, I'm going to tell you. I said, they got that zero in on us. <laughs> I said, I've got the place where we're going to sleep tonight. We're going to sleep in a bed. He said, where? I said, down on the river, I said, there's a hotel down there. I mean, we were down there, I said, they got, they got a room for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we got down the hotel, we got into bed, and I, I said, with the Neil, I said, boy, I said, this is great, I said, this time I'm tired of sleeping on the ground. <laughs> so, and, and from over the just we haven't gone to sleep yet. But the next thing I know, Right off the side of the building, there was a shell, <laughs> and he jumped up out on the bed. He said, Frank, he used to call me Francis. Francis, he said, for heaven's sake, let's get out of here. He said, that woman, and next one I jumped on the window. <laughs> and I said, he ran out of the room. He said, I'm going down to the, what they call the Luftschutzraum, which is the uh, you know, Luftschutzraum, what do they call it in English? Uh, you know, secure place down there. Oh, yeah, there. like a bomb shelter or something. Shelter, yeah. Yeah. And so he went down there. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where a lot, a lot of them were. I stayed, I stayed in the bed. You stayed in bed? I stayed in bed. I said, I'm not budging. <laughs> so I come down in the morning, you know. I about, uh, he says to me, you didn't stay up there all night, did you? I said, I didn't move out of that bed. And I said, I had a nice sleep. thank you for listening to this episode of the brick brought to you by the museum's proud business partners questions comments and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org.